0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash ANV. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on stroke risk in type 2 diabetes. This activity comprises three presentations featuring Professor Davies, Professor Cruz and Dr Peterson. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Melanie Davies from the University of Leicester in Leicester, uh, UK. And you're very welcome to this activity on managing stroke risk uh, in people living with type 2 diabetes. Um, I'm really delighted to have uh, joining me in the discussion today, two colleagues, uh, Christina Cruz from Copenhagen, University Hospital in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. And Sue Pedersen from the C-Endo Diabetes and Endocrinology Clinic in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, 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 Welcome, Sue. Hi, good morning. So we're going to go through... um, uh, three uh, sections and we're going to start um, to talk about proactive stroke risk mitigation strategies, um, taking aim in type 2 diabetes. And the reason this is really important is because we know that despite the associations and poor outcomes associated with type 2 diabetes and stroke, the interaction between these conditions is still underappreciated. And there have been a number of uh, data, particularly, for example, a meta-analysis from the emerging risk stroke collaborators, showing that one in eight deaths uh, in people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes may be attributable to stroke. Uh, We also know that if people survive stroke, that this is associated with increased ischemic damage to the brain and subsequent risk uh, of cognitive decline and dementia. And neurologists in particular uh, probably should pay, play a greater role in the MDT in terms of the prevention and management of stroke risk in people living uh, with type 2 diabetes. So in this first section, making the connection between stroke and type 2 diabetes, we know that there's a connection between type 2 diabetes and stroke. We know that individuals living with type 2 diabetes are at higher risk for stroke and we know that if you have uh, have type 2 diabetes and you've had a stroke, then you uh, have worse outcomes than people without type 2 diabetes. Uh, Christina, perhaps you could enlighten us on what we know about the relationship between type 2 diabetes and stroke.
1: There are several interactions between type 2 diabetes and the risk of stroke, um, um, in particular because the cardiovascular risk factors uh, occur in type 2 diabetes, and they are also risk factors for the for for a subsequent stroke, and it's on different levels in the body. It may be, um, I mean, it it may not as much be the type two diabetes, but all the following diseases such as hypertension, microvascular disease, lipid uh, abnormalities, um, and also some of the neurological uh, issues such as autonomic dysfunction uh, could actually increase the risk of stroke. But it, it may be um, affecting atherosclerosis and the large arteries. It may affect the small vessels of the brain and then increase the risk of small vessel disease and small vessel uh, occlusion stroke. So relating to endothelial dysfunction, it's a very close interaction that we actually see between type 2 diabetes and the risk of stroke. I don't know, Sue, if you can give us a little bit perspective of
0: um, the magnitude of how type 2 diabetes is a risk factor for stroke. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. So we know that people with type 2 diabetes are
2: clearly at elevated risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and that includes stroke. In this study, which was a meta-analysis of about 700,000 patients from over 100 studies It was found that people with diabetes had a two times higher risk of having coronary artery disease compared to people without diabetes. The risk of coronary death was over double that versus a person without diabetes. The risk of ischemic stroke now was over two times higher in people with diabetes, hemorrhagic stroke risk was elevated, and vascular deaths were almost double versus that of a patient without diabetes. Christina, as a neurologist, does this stroke data reflect what you see in your practice?
1: Yes, indeed it does. Um, In in neurology, we differentiate the different stroke subtypes. We see that diabetes uh, may associate to ischemic stroke and lesser to hemorrhagic stroke. But within ischemic stroke, we have different subtypes. We have the small vessel disease, the large artery strokes, and the cardioembolic strokes. It seems to propagate the small vessel disease-associated uh, strokes. Um, and and these are also the ones that induce uh, vascular dementia. So, so it's, it's really important to address this issue.
2: We know vascular dementia can be debilitating, of course, uh, from a quality mm. of life perspective and, and so forth. So that's a, a really important
1: point. It is a really important issue because it, it sneaks up on these patients. They, they tend not to notice and the doctors, the general practitioners tend not to notice. Uh, the next point I'd like to make is that the risk of stroke
2: increases with higher A1C. So we know there's a clear relationship between higher A1c and a higher risk of macrovascular complications overall. This systematic review and meta-analysis demonstrated that for every 1% increase in A1c, there was a 17% increased risk of first-ever stroke. And when we look only at first-ever ischemic strokes, for every 1% A1C increment in people with diabetes, there was a 49% increase in risk. Interestingly, even in people with prediabetes, for every 1% increment in A1C, there was a 24% increased risk, suggesting that the relationship with glycemia and ischemic stroke may exist even in the prediabetes range. Melanie, I would say that in my practice, uh, that those who go on to stroke are more likely poor glycemic control over time. But I would also say that those who have poor diabetes control go on to stroke earlier in their diabetes disease course compared to people who have good diabetes control.
0: What do you think? I think that's an important point because it emphasizes the need for proactive good early glycemic control. We know that that's important for a number of factors, but I think often we overlook um, uh, the stroke risk and the need for uh, good glycemic control uh, to prevent uh, first episode of stroke. I think we've talked a little bit, Christina, with you in terms of the mechanisms and the the subtypes that you see uh, in patients with diabetes. You've talked about the higher proportion of ischemic stroke. Would you like to um, expand on that a little bit more? And I think you mentioned also the risk of vascular dementia, because that's something that as diabetologists we need to be really aware of. It is a really
1: important issue because it, it sneaks up on these patients. They They tend not to notice and the doctors, the general practitioners tend not to notice. But it's really important to... To add the or reduce the other risk factors for, for, for these uh, outcomes, uh, addressing the other cardiovascular risk factors. Um, in the STENO 2 trial it was seen that if you address the issue, the cardiovascular risk factors very early, you have a, a high reduction of, of uh, stroke risk uh, of the following years. So, so it's really important to, when you have a, a patient with type 2 diabetes, to address the hypertension, the, hyper, uh, the hyperlipidemia, um, the, the, uh, also uh, if they have sleep apnea, all these other conditions that may affect type 2 diabetes, uh, to reduce the, later, uh, uh, the, the onset of stroke uh, later on. Um, and also the, the time to, to stroke.
0: In your experience, when you see these patients who've had a stroke, who've got type 2 diabetes,
1: Mm. do they have worse outcomes? They do have worse outcome, in particular if we don't regulate the blood sugar uh, on admission with the stroke. It's really important to make sure that you, um, you stabilize the blood sugar when they are admitted and if it's the first time diagnosis of uh, type 2 diabetes, we need to regulate it very uh, strictly in our clinic. Everybody has uh, a screening for for type 2 diabetes when they enter the department Um, and we manage the treatment uh, together with the endocrinologists. We're now in a a new era, era, certainly in terms of the
0: management of type 2 diabetes where Recent guidelines uh, talk about the proactive use of, of therapies which are likely to reduce uh, cardio outcomes, and we've had these big cardiovascular outcome studies where we've looked at three-point MACE, and, and clearly that includes um, stroke outcomes, non-fatal and fatal. We know that GLP-1 has a number of um, uh, effects, particularly in the cardiovascular system, but it also reduces blood pressure, reduces inflammation, um, reduces coagulation. So there may be uh, beyond uh, glucose lowering and weight loss, which we see with these agents, uh, potential uh, for cardiovascular uh, protection and also to reduce stroke risk. Um, uh, Sue, what's your um, opinion? We do have these wonderful data that in addition to good glycemic
2: control, lipid and blood pressure control, we have good evidence from the GLP-1 receptor agonists in particular that they reduce stroke risk, largely independent of A1C. So they are now recommended prominently as choice medications in diabetes pharmacotherapy guidelines around the world, along
0: with, of course, the SGLT2 inhibitors for their cardiorenal benefits. So just to look at what we know about the GLP-1s, for example, in stroke prevention, we actually have, I think, some really good data. So I think you'd agree that from some of these outcome studies, particularly, uh, I think, uh, in the um, LEADER and SUSTAIN and, and Rewind trials, where you can see um, reductions uh, in stroke risk. And overall, it's about a 17% reduction uh, in stroke outcomes from the GLP-1s
2: There's a lot of discussion of whether uh, GLP-1s, the benefits are a class effect or not. uh, And I I think maybe that's a debate for another day. But uh, I agree with you. It's those agents in particular, um, semaglutide, liraglutide and dulaglutide, where uh, we really have the strongest evidence for uh, CV risk reduction.
0: There is uh, some um, uh, data clearly with the SGLT2s in terms of cardiovascular outcome studies, but they're... The impacts if you break down um three point mace is not so. Compelling as it is with the GLP-1s specifically for stroke,
2: there was no significant uh, benefit from a stroke perspective in any of the SGLT2 trials. GLP-1 is an anti-atherosclerotic hormone in its mechanism of action, uh, whereas the SGLT2 inhibitors really seem to only reduce atherosclerotic risk in people with established cardiovascular disease. None of the studies showed benefit in in the stroke department. Uh, the evidence is really more clear for the GLP-1 receptor agonist.
0: Christina, it would be interesting to know from you of the awareness of these agents from the
1: neurology uh, perspective. We have become increasingly aware about the GLP-1 receptor agonist effect uh, on the secondary prevention of stroke. Um, and I think we are uh, more prone to changing the medication. If they do have type 2 diabetes uh, on arrival in that department, and they are to have a different treatment afterwards, we are more prone to change to a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Sue, do you want to
0: talk about some of the other factors that are really important for managing stroke risk in, in our patients with type 2 diabetes?
2: We've we've touched on a lot of these already. Good blood pressure control, uh, optimizing lipids, and that's not just LDL targeted therapies, but also uh, icosapent ethyl, which shows a marked reduction in stroke risk of 28% in patients who are on statin therapy. Uh, smoking cessation. Uh, Treating obesity is a really important part of the conversation as well, because we know that obesity is associated with a lot of these other uh, vascular risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia and so forth. And promoting physical activity is always important for a cardiorespiratory benefit.
0: I think we've had a, a really excellent discussion. I think we've highlighted how diabetes and stroke are inextricably linked Um, We have also highlighted how there needs to be almost a a call to action to really raise awareness about um, the the risk of stroke, but also how neurologists and endocrinologists work together uh, to better manage uh, and improve outcomes uh, for these uh, patients. Thank you very much for your attention. Welcome to this uh, session on identifying type 2 diabetes in the neurology clinic, suspect it, Find it, uh, manage it. So I'm uh, Melanie Davies. I'm from the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. Um, and welcome again to this activity. Joining me in, the, in, my, uh, in this discussion are my colleagues, Christina Cruz from Copenhagen, Univ- University Hospitals in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. And Sue Pedersen from the C. Endo Diabetes and Endocrinology Clinic in Calgary, Alberta. Thanks for joining us, Sue. Hi, thanks. We're going to um, talk about and and explore in a little bit more detail some strategies, therapeutic strategies that we may have for people who've had a stroke and have newly diagnosed or suboptimally managed type 2 diabetes. Um, So let's start with um, a patient or a person living with diabetes who's newly diagnosed and has uh, just uh, suffered um, a stroke. Um, a lady in her mid-50s um, who's uh, presented with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes. Typically, these patients are quite overweight. They may already uh, be hypertensive. Sue, so what would you typically see from an HbA1c in the, in a patient presenting like this? Sandra has an A1c of 8.2%, uh, which is
2: Uh, A very common uh, A1c, now this is a newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes patient, uh, where we uh, do see them sometimes with an A1c that's just mildly elevated like this, but uh, we also see patients with new diabetes every week who have an A1c
0: of 11-12% and higher even. You're quite right, it's quite a spectrum. Christina, tell us about the t- typical things that we may see from the brain CT in this
1: patient. Uh, we uh, usually uh, detect uh, small vessel disease, white matter, hyperintensities, uh, in addition to the the stroke they have. And that may be either a small vessel occlusion stroke or a large artery stroke affecting uh, a, a larger part of the brain. We do not see a hemorrhage that often. It's mainly these ischemic strokes we see. So this
0: patient is already on uh, blood pressure lowering. They're on, maybe on an ACE inhibitor. Uh, they're already on um, thiazide diuretic. Um, what, uh, they're not on any diabetes medications uh, when they present. What other medications would you expect them to be on, Christina?
1: What we usually see is that they have these medications as shown here. So the, it's the antihypertensive, the lipid lowering. Um, sometimes we do see an antithrombotic and that would be aspirin uh, usually. So Sue, I'm going to come to
0: you first. So from your perspective, you see a, you see a patient like this newly diagnosed What issue from your perspective would you um, uh, think needs to be addressed first and what would be your goals um, and and how would you take those forward? Sandra is a newly
2: diagnosed type 2 diabetes patient. She's had a stroke. She needs glycemic control. Her blood pressure was above target. She needs better blood pressure control. She also has obesity, and we can address all of these together in a holistic fashion. Using a GLP-1 here can reduce stroke risk, can reduce A1c quite powerfully, give some modest blood pressure reduction, and can also reduce weight. There's a lot of discussion uh, amongst the uh, guidelines around the world as to whether metformin should be first line or whether we should in a patient such as this, go to a GLP-1 receptor agonist as the first choice. For myself personally, I would like to see her first on a GLP-1 uh, for the reasons described. And then we can always look at adding metformin down the road or SGLT-2. I would also suggest that for neurologists uh, joining us today, that. If you're not sure what to do or what to start or how to go about it, it's really important to have communication amongst the specialties. Uh, I'm a community-based endocrinologist, and we're only a phone call away. I have communications daily with neurologists, with nephrologists, with cardiologists, because patients are often quite complex, and we need to work together and communicate to provide the best possible united care uh, for treating these patients with all of their comorbidities.
0: That's a really important point. During COVID, it's become in some ways easier to reach and have those discussions in the virtual world now because we're all so much better uh, at doing that. Christina, give us the perspective from the neurology point of view.
1: During the last few years, we've been very privileged to have a good collaboration with our Department of Endocrinology. So we have a a nurse actually visiting us, uh, our department, almost on a daily basis to uh, help us uh, adjust the medication um, as uh, to, to the best treatment. Uh, and we really um, uh, gain from this interaction and this collaboration and our patients gain from it. They feel more comfortable that uh, those most knowledgeable about addressing the diabetes or their diabetes uh, also uh, help um Uh, adjusting the medications and are part of the treatment while they are at our unit.
0: So you talked about GLP-1. Would you go to that before metformin in this patient?
2: In this patient, I would. Uh, Again, because with the GLP-1 receptor agonist for Sandra, we can get reduction in risk of having another stroke, improvement in her A1C... We'll get some blood pressure improvement. We can get some powerful weight reduction as well. So I really like that we're unifying the treatment goals with the use of one medication. And that doesn't mean we're finished there. It may be appropriate to then consider an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, Metformin also still remains a very important medication. But in someone who's just had a stroke, I really want to get them onto a
0: GLP-1 receptor agonist first. I agree with GLP-1 in somebody with a BMI of 38 with the good Uh, evidence in terms of stroke uh, and the A1C and low risk of hypo would be important to give from the uh, cardioprotective perspective. We should be using that regardless of A1C and regardless of metformin. Uh, Christina, would you just go through and
1: tell us about uh, this second case? This is a different patient, age uh, about uh, 62, and he uh, presents for treatment of uh, type 2 diabetes and hypertension after ischemic stroke. He has uh, presented with type 2 diabetes in his 40s, and he also had some cardiovascular risk factors with a drug-eluting stent. The brain MRI is very typical for this type of patient with the evidence of small infarcts. He is uh, dysregulated in his A1C um and also in his uh, lipids so it needs a, a thorough work through with all the different uh treatments the compliance um needs to be addressed um why doesn't he um if does he comply to the treatment it doesn't look like it how could he do better so uh, what's your perspective here here
0: we've got somebody who, you know, since uh, the age of their mid 40s um, has had type 2 diabetes, but is in quite a perilous situation now, really, in terms of uh, of a number of factors. Do you want to comment? If
2: uh, we look at his medication list, he is prescribed metformin. uh, But when we talk to him about it, he says, well, you know, I'm getting some GI side effects, so I'm not really taking it. He's on a urea, which he admits he takes occasionally, that he frequently skips or forgets to take his medication. So I agree with uh, Christina. I think the number one thing we need to talk about here is explore The compliance issues in a supportive and empathetic manner. We want to identify and overcome any barriers to compliance. Does he maybe need some blister packs to help him to remember his medication? Does he have psychosocial issues that are inhibiting his ability to afford medication? does he have vascular dementia onset? As Christina said, what are the reasons here? And what makes me really nervous in this kind of patient with an A1c of 11.6, you know, insulin is something that's going to be considered. And we do see that patients with a very high A1c are actually at highest risk of severe hypoglycemia. I think a lot of that has to do with undetected compliance issues and then their insulin dose gets bumped and then higher, higher and they're not taking it. Then they take it one day and have a severe hypoglycemic episode.
0: And Christina, there may be other psychological issues going on. Depression can be quite a significant barrier to care. How does the multidisciplinary team come
1: into uh, this situation? About forty percent of patients with a stroke experience depression in the aftermath of 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 a stroke. Uh, and also you may suspect, as as Sue mentioned, that he had some cognitive issues. And uh, we need to have uh, a, a full uh, a sort of um, uh, evaluation of his cognitive abilities, whether we uh, he should be supported in his home setting by someone who can uh, help him with the medication.
0: So, from your perspective, he's got quite a high A1c. What do we know about you know, the pros and cons of reducing the blood sugar quickly but safely? I would really want to focus on overcoming compliance barriers
2: here first, uh, and then try to figure out what to do from there in terms of optimizing his glycemia. We we do need to get the glucose down fairly efficiently and quickly but safely. Uh, Safely meaning primarily avoiding hypoglycemia. Um, The two main choices that I would be thinking about here are basal insulin as we talked about and I'd also be thinking about semaglutide subcutaneously because it's also very powerful to give quite a large A1c reduction. Now, uh, one thing that we want to know about Jamil is whether he has any proliferative retinopathy, because when we have a very high A1c in a patient with proliferative retinopathy at baseline and we reduce it quickly, it can get temporarily worse uh, when we bring down the sugars really fast. And that is true of whether you do that with insulin or whether you do that with semaglutide. So uh, having an ophthalmologist involved to screen the eyes and see if, if it's okay to proceed with
0: doing it quite rapidly. In these two cases, we've highlighted somebody with newly diagnosed diabetes, somebody with uh, a long established diabetes, but very uh, poor glycemic control. I think both of them emphasise the importance for good multidisciplinary team working, both for those early interventions, but also to manage these more complex uh, comorbid patients that this all needs to be incorporated into a holistic and patient-centred care. Any final comments uh, from Sue, you
1: or Christina? Yes, actually, I think we we may forget uh, uh, someone who can help these patients, and that is their relatives. So it's really important to include the relatives in in the information to the patients, in our uh, management of the patients, so they can be uh, helpful for the patient in uh, in compliance and in managing their disease. Absolutely, that's a really
0: important point. Any final comments from you, Sue? It's really important to
2: emphasize the teamwork. Uh, as you said, Melanie, teamwork makes the dream work, right? We, we need to work together with uh, our patients, with their family members, with the
0: specialists involved in care, with the primary care physician, with the allied health professionals. Thank you, Sue, that's a good point to end on. So thank you for joining us uh, for this session. Hello, I'm Melanie Davies, and I'm a a professor of diabetes medicine from the University of Leicester in Leicester in the UK. Uh, Welcome to this activity on managing stroke risk in people with type two diabetes. Um, I'm joining, uh, joined today by two colleagues, Christina Cruz from uh, Copenhagen in Denmark and Sue Pedersen uh, from uh, uh, Calgary, Alberta. Thank you. And in this presentation, what we'd like to do is to discuss together uh, how we can work together to manage stroke risk for our patients with uh, type 2 diabetes. And, and uh, the way I'd like to frame this is in a case uh, study and I'd like uh, Sue for you to uh, to set a scene with with a case for us please. Thanks Melanie. So
2: let's meet Paulina. So she's a lady with type 2 diabetes, she also has hypertension, obesity and she's had diabetes now for about a decade. When she comes to us her A1c is 8.2 percent, her LDL is above the target uh, of less than two Uh, in the Canadian guidelines. Triglycerides are also mildly elevated and we need to talk about that. That's not something we want to ignore. Uh, Blood pressure is above target. She's got good renal function um, and she's got a little bit of albuminuria uh, as well. She's tried losing weight before without success. Her primary care physician wanted to put her on insulin but she's worried about injections and she's worried about gaining even more weight. Her current medications uh, for her diabetes, she's on metformin monotherapy. Uh, She's also on an ACE inhibitor, Ramipril, and she's on uh, Torvastatin. Uh, She had tried glimepiride in the past, uh, but this was discontinued due to uh, side effects, primarily the weight gain, which she didn't want. And she was having some hypoglycemic events as well.
0: So that is quite a typical patient, Sue, that we might see in the clinic. And in terms uh, uh, from a a diabetes perspective, she's not had a stroke, she's not had a cardiovascular event before, but we're thinking about risk for the future. So what sort of factors are you going to take into account to mitigate her long-term cardiovascular health, including her risk for stroke? Yeah, so
2: she's got a lot of things going on here that we need to optimize. So actually, Christina, maybe I could ask you, which of all of these factors concern you the most regarding stroke risk?
1: Uh, we know from larger studies, from the uh, interstroke study, that uh, hypertension and uh, uh, lack of physical or reduced physical activity are the main uh, issues to address. Um, we haven't asked her about her physical activity, but that's one thing you could address in these patients. Um, and uh, the, the blood pressure is really important to, to have uh, control of.
0: So, Christina, I think you make a really important point about physical activity because I don't think it's something we do particularly well in the clinic. And I think now with pedometers and with the smartphones, it's pretty easy for people to monitor their step counts. And it can be very revealing, actually. And often, um, you know, people are pleasantly surprised if you ask them about that and they can be quite motivated by Uh, the the wearables that we have now that make this much more easy to monitor.
2: There's certainly some benefits of physical activity independent of the effect on weight, but I think these are both issues that uh, we have traditionally not prioritized. And I agree with you that there are a lot of tools and apps and uh, many different things that we can help to engage our patients in a better approach to a healthier lifestyle.
0: If we look in some of the outcome studies with the GLP-1s, for example, in Rewind, which had a large proportion of patients with risk factors without established disease, we do see some quite encouraging data in terms of the risk of fatal or non-fatal stroke in that study with hazard ratios of about 0.76 for fatal or non-fatal stroke. And again, 0.76 for non-fatal stroke. Sue, did you want to comment on that at all?
2: Yeah, I, I I feel that this is really important data when we're thinking about what we want to do uh, to optimize and reduce Paulina's risk over the long term. Uh, now, we did point out that she does have albuminuria. So actually, my first addition as far as a pharmacotherapy in her case would actually be an SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, From there, they would then look at adding in a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, like dulaglutide in the primary prevention patient where there is the best data for uh, reducing stroke risk.
0: So thanks, thanks, Sue. So let's go to um, a different case now. So um, I think we've got um, uh, an older patient now who's... um, uh, Sue, did you want to tell us about uh, Alberto?
2: Sure, I'd love to. So Alberto now is a 70-year-old man. Uh, He's had diabetes for about 14 years, and he's also got a background history of atrial fibrillation, and he has established cardiovascular disease. He's had a myocardial infarction. Uh, He has hypertension as an additional comorbidity. When we look at his recent lab results, uh, he's got an A1C, which is uh, quite well controlled at 6.8%. Uh, LDL is above target, uh, so we need to look at optimizing that. Triglycerides, again, elevated, so we need to be thinking about icosapent ethyl for reduction in CV risk and stroke risk on top of statin therapy. Uh, he has a quite good renal function, GFR of 66, with some mild albuminuria. Uh, blood pressure is good and uh, he has a BMI of 27 and we need to see, you know, is that because he's a more muscular gentleman at age 70 or does he perhaps have some abdominal obesity? So we would need to understand his uh, the implications of his BMI a little better. Medication-wise, he's on metformin and citagliptin for his diabetes control, as well as basal insulin, 42 units. Now, we remember his A1C was 6.8, which looks really good, but now that we know he's taking insulin, Um, we need to be looking very carefully to make sure that this gentleman doesn't have any hypoglycemia pulling that A1c down. Because remember, A1c just gives an average. It tells us nothing about the standard deviation of blood sugar. And in a 70-year-old gentleman who is also at risk of perhaps vascular dementia or at risk of stroke as well, Uh, we need to know if he's maybe having some hypoglycemia unawareness and maybe having some lower sugars pulling that A1c down.
0: So so this chap's already had an MI, he's already got AF, and yet he's on no glucose-lowering therapies that are essentially going to offer him cardiovascular uh, protection.
2: Alberto has important indications for both a GLP-1 receptor agonist being his established cardiovascular disease and for an SGLT2 inhibitor with uh, some mild albuminuria. So we would like to get both of these treatments on board. Now, we need to be very careful as we do that because we remember he's on basal insulin. Uh, So if we simply add in either of these agents without reducing the insulin, he's going to to get into trouble with hypoglycemia. And I find in my communications with uh, cardiology colleagues or nephrology colleagues, they call me and say that this patient should be on A GLP1 or an SGLT2, but I'm not sure what to do with the insulin dose. And that's where that discussion and that uh, integration of care among specialists is really important. I'm more than happy to help walk them through that uh, or to see them as as a patient myself. Uh, The other thing that I can sometimes be a perceived barrier is uh, the needle injection of uh, administration subcutaneously of many of the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And uh, I mean, Alberto is already on basal insulin, so he won't have a needle barrier. He's already taking an injectable treatment. Um, But when we're looking at, let's say, a patient who's not already on an injectable, um, it's actually very straightforward to teach a patient and educate them on how to use an injectable GLP-1. And often there are Excellent allied healthcare members of the team, a certified diabetes educator as a nurse or pharmacist or dietitian who can do all of that teaching. So uh, one of the messages I'd like to share is to not feel um, inhibited by the time that you feel it might take to get a patient started on an injectable treatment and use the team members that you have to help you along that journey and to spend the time that the patient might need to first learn it and get going.
0: And Christina, from your perspective, what uh, what about the atrial fibrillation? How concerned are we
1: about that? It's really important that he has the secondary prevention for his uh, atrial fibrillation, that he has a control over his blood pressure, and that his type 2 diabetes is is, uh, controlled. The GLP-1 receptor agonist, uh, it's really a game changer for many of these patients, both those who are at high risk of stroke, but also those who have actually had a stroke.
0: We also need to think
1: about the SGLT2s because there's some quite good data
0: in terms of atrial fibrillation as well. Um, from some of the studies. So I think that we're almost spoilt for choice. We've got a number of, of uh, different potential agents now, and perhaps if we'd been treating him a few years ago, he wouldn't have been on insulin and a DPP-4. He would be uh, on uh, some of these other agents at an earlier stage. And I suppose when we think about clinical inertia and we are slow often to start things but sometimes we're slow to stop things and de-intensify treatments and it uh, Sue made the really important point about how we may need to stop and reduce down other treatments and introduce uh, more appropriate therapies. On that note, just a clinical pearl, um, we remember that Alberto was
2: on a DPP-4 inhibitor. So if you're starting a GLP-1, we want to actually stop the DPP-4 inhibitor because these are both incretin therapies and it's redundant to use them together.
0: Absolutely. So thank you both for joining and talking about these uh, cases. I think it um, reminds us of how neurologists and, and endocrinologists need to work together more and have a greater understanding um, of both uh, specialities and understand how we can work together to reduce uh, the risk of stroke uh, in people with type 2 diabetes. I think that whilst there are challenges, clearly we've highlighted major opportunities um, with new therapies now available um, that are now increasingly used in diabetes practice that will have an impact, I think, on on stroke, uh, both the risk of stroke and and outcomes moving forward. Um, And I think that the way things are changing, that's likely to be much more incorporated into routine care. Um, And I think the other thing that's likely to change is this continued uh, closer collaboration of the MDT um, in the management of these conditions. Sue, any final words from you? Um, So my suggestion
2: would be uh, for all of us to have a vascular risk reduction checklist in our head to run through every time we see a patient with vascular disease or with type 2 diabetes. And that list is getting longer and it will get longer in the future. In addition to, you know, the standard things that we're used to for so many years, thinking about uh, is my patient on a statin? Are they on an ACE or ARB? Should they be on a a baby aspirin for secondary prevention patients? Uh, Should they be? on a GLP1 that should be on the list should they be on an SGLT2 inhibitors got to be on that list and uh, eicosapendethyl is another really important one is there lipid uh, LDL at target you know these are all things we just should have a checklist and run through those it's it's our uh, obligation our duty and our joy to be considering these treatments to further reduce residual risk in our patients.
0: Any final comments uh, Christina from you?
1: Uh, no, I, I, f- I fully support your, uh, uh, your conclusion on, on the collaborative uh, approach towards these complicated patients. It's really, really important that we talk together, both as a professional uh, getting the right treatment on board, but also for the patient to see that we actually communicate and that he or she feels comfortable with what we do. Thank you both for an
0: excellent discussion, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. This has been an activity published by PeerVoice.